0: The Process, a podcast about creativity and experimental music. In the world of experimental music, outcomes and accolades for creators can be uncertain and at times seem far and few between. Therefore, creators and practitioners of experimental music must embrace the one thing they will always have complete control over, the process. This podcast aims to understand this creative process by listening to new works and discussing them with their creators. Each episode focuses on one creator and their music. Understanding how and why they create can inform aspiring creatives and help audiences better understand and navigate experimental music. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeier, and I'll be your host as we explore the world of experimental music, creativity, and the human need to find purpose in their world and lives. This is The Process. Greg Nahabedian is a gender non-binary composer, teacher, and performer of orchestral, operatic, and chamber music that often incorporates spoken word and storytelling. Greg's music has been performed by a very small consortium, Hypercube, Kevin Madison, Neil Parsons, the Boston Conservatory Chorale, Corum Boston, Stephanie Lampara, and has received commissions from Mazulma, Drag Yourself Together, Boy Nirvana, Neil Parsons, Histamine Tapes, Waywords and Mean Signs, Reworked, and the Coaxial Gallery, among others. In 2018, Greg was named as finalist for the ASCAP Morton Gould Award, and in 2019, Greg was a semi-finalist for American Opera Project's Composer and the Voice program. Greg runs the Boston New Music Calendar and the record label, Dollhouse Lightning, and is a founding member of the opera company Strange Trace. Greg received their B.A. in music composition from Hampshire College in 2014 under Marty Ehrlich and Kate Soper, and their Master's in music composition from Boston Conservatory in 2018 under Curtis Hughes and Felipe Lara. Greg is a member of the bands Cheap City, Niffin, and MickTheProfessor.gov and is currently an instructor of piano and composition at Nashua Community Music School in Nashua, New Hampshire.
1: I think I like the kind of music where you're not sure how things are related until much later like something like the ben johnston string quartets where you're kind of like why though um and then at the end you go oh yeah okay like that was the most like satisfying thing i've ever heard and i I really like these overlapping and like interplaying rhythms um, especially when they're this is five beats and this is four and a half and i'm just gonna let these play out until they until they find each
0: other again what is most commonly the impetus for you to start creating
1: by and large like my main impetus is always storytelling i occasionally will kind of think like oh wouldn't it be cool if i did a piece where i don't know it was like tuba and piccolo or like something dumb
0: Uh, like the worst duo combination you can (laughs) think of like celeste and i don't know tuba that would probably be pretty (laughs) actually i think that would be rad (laughs) <laughs> I, I it sounds random that I brought that up but I actually tried doing that once <laughs> that's why I brought it up. It, it was a horrible disaster. <laughs> but but interesting so even the story or the drama between pairing two things that normally aren't, you know, traditionally a duo or or might not work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, one thing I I have started to do with instrumental pieces is um I mean I have my my uh, students do this a lot which is you're learning i don't know moonlight sonata or something and uh, i want you to play more like stylistically so i always say like if this music was in a movie like what's happening and th- they're like oh i don't know like the guy's sad or something um and i'm like okay well like you have to make it sound sad you know um like yeah. you need to convince me pretend that i've never heard this before so sometimes with like my instrumental pieces i will kind of think of like a scene either it it could be from a movie or like my life or like whatever that um maybe i'm like scoring this um as like as an impetus i'm working on a piece right now that's going to be i think for piano and like electric organ and all the rhythms and pitches are coming from um my favorite uh, scenes in the Sopranos where, uh, Tony's in therapy. So I think the (laughs) organ is going to be Melfi and he's going to be the piano. Um, (laughs) and like, that's it.
0: And so you say it might be. So really then you're saying when you created this idea, it's this idea and it wasn't a piano idea. It wasn't specifically an organ idea it was
1: it, it was a soprano's idea
0: it was a soprano's <laughs> idea yeah, there might be some copyright issues right now <laughs> are you doing that a lot then are you taking these sort of worldly ideas and and translating them in, into music is that is that what you find you're doing
1: yeah i think i have a hard time like i said earlier just like coming up with a theme or something and being like like let's see how this plays out i've like done that kind of composing but it tends to not be super fruitful for me but if i have some sort of like dramatic impulse. Like I did the same thing with a piece just because I was like, I need need some rhythms to work with. I need some melodies to work with. And I just started transcribing scenes from Lord of the Rings with Roto and Sam talking to each other. And I was like, this has nothing to do with the piece. I just like need something to, I need like some clay to mold here. Yeah. And I think like those actual rhythms and pitches didn't make it into the final piece because they got changed so much. Sometimes I look for these generative processes to just like give me material to work with, with more dramatic work. So I've written um, an opera I wrote when I was an undergrad, a piece for a narrator and large ensemble. And for those uh, to generate leitmotifs or whatever, I used this kind of like alphabetic logarithm where like for all 26 letters, I assigned a pitch and then would just like plug people's names in. And that's how I generated like just, you know, all the themes to, to work with
0: so then it was like a light motive but it was uh, a random randomly generated whose motive is what yeah right yeah so did the hero have a hero's theme then or no who knows yeah the hero might have had the <laughs> villain's theme
1: yeah but- and, well that's what i, I think i thought made it like interesting okay well, yeah what if the villain and the hero <laughs> have really similar pitches how do i differentiate those two and does that say something to me dramatically like can that enhance the storyline somehow so I think like those, those things I find really fun to play with. feathers in your spokes i was listening to mingus's black saint and the sinner lady and started thinking about that opening drum line which i just like lifted all the rhythms and then orchestrated it around the ensemble and the ensemble on that piece is hypercube right that's how it started um like the vibraphone is playing the snare drum part the guitar is the hi-hats and then we just i just kind of went from there and then thought oh yeah like black saint does this like wacky thing where all of a sudden it switches to swing in like a totally unrelated tempo um, and I was like I'll do that that's fine so sometimes I kind of set up a restriction on myself of like okay I have like these parts and I'm forced to do this and then once those are kind of in place then I start to play with them and like see what happens
0: so one thing I noticed about feathers in your spokes is that there's these intentional pauses that happen
1: when I wrote that, like I had just finished my first opera, which is, has no stops apart from like a brief intermission. So I had been kind of like transition obsessed for mm-hmm. about a year. Sure. Um, <laughs> and I th- so I think I started writing this and I was like, I'm done with transitions. Um, yep. I think the, cha- the challenge I set for myself was like, can I write disparate parts that are convincing in their cohesiveness, but without mm-hmm. convincing transition?
0: Well, the transition is the pause.
1: Yeah. So I guess without like a like a through composed, like, sure. you know, this yeah. is a, like a transitional chord progression or something, um, which is definitely something like, I've written other pieces where I've enjoyed the humor of like, here's this, you know, 20 measure chord progression that doesn't make any sense, but like gets us somewhere else. Um, sure. But at, th- at this point, I was, I was just like, you know what, like, let's just, let's just get to the next thing.
0: You said that you've done a lot of work in sort of rock, punk, metal, um, and you've worked in groups uh, like Niffin, and um, currently uh, you're still a member of Silent Distortion. Is that
1: correct? Oh, uh, no. I actually, I don't even know yeah. where, uh, yeah. uh, that, that name might be on my website. I have been in that band since yeah. I was uh, 16. 16?
0: Six, 16. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so a little while ago. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Uh, uh, my current bands. I mean, so I'm in Niffin with Aaron Myers. Yeah. Um, and my other kind of main project is a band called cheap city. Um, and that is like a, uh, kind of like Zappa esque dancey band. Um, and all the songs are about a city that I made up. Um, and there's, we have maps and, um, like Wikipedia style entries about kind of like every location mentioned in the
0: songs, (laughs) What, what's one of the most notable locations in Cheap City?
1: Uh, the Kill Buck Sweet Shop is a is a candy store where there was a murder. Oh. Oh. So um, <laughs> we're currently working on like a radio play style podcast about the detective who uh, has to investigate it.
0: And so that's a, a Zappa esque rock. Would you would you say it is? Yeah, or? Um,
1: I whenever I, I always say dance punk.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: I think the energy and like directness of punk music is something that I like really identify with. Um, but I also spent, um, you know, five or six years in like a very kind of like intense screamy band. Um, and when that dissolved, I I kind of said to the, the folks I was starting a new band with, like I think I only want to do things that people can dance to, and everybody was totally on board. So,
0: what does feathers in your spokes mean? What's the meaning of the title? What's the the story you're trying to tell? As as you mentioned before,
1: the title comes from a song by um, the Silver Mount Zion Memorial Orchestra. The song is called Black Waters Blowed. I don't know what they what they used it to mm-hmm. mean necessarily, um, but sure. What the title meant to me is like I like this the idea of like I've kind of pictured like a child like putting feathers mm-hmm. like in the spokes of like a bicycle like instead of like
0: right. instead of like
1: baseball, baseball cards or whatever um yeah. kind of like this metaphor for like the work of a creative mm-hmm. thinking about like what is like the trajectory of my life you, you know that's also like a very punk thing of like I am like the only one who has like the power to make this happen you know not not that like that sentiment is intrinsically linked to the music in that piece. Uh, But I think that's kind of where Mm -hmm. my head was at. I mean, it was like the last Mm -hmm. piece I wrote um, during my master's degree. I was about to get married and, you know, a very big like transitional point in my life.
0: For a piece that has no transitions. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You're finding all these exciting things. You're working in a band. You're doing all these multiple things in new music. You've just started an, uh, an opera company. You are responsible for the new music calendar. So you're doing all these things. And that kind of gets me to one of the creative cogitations, which is, uh, is a uh, creative life or the creative or creator's lifestyle, is that linked to a stable existence?
1: To me, when I hear that, I think, can I pay my bills? Am I working a reasonable amount of time per week? Is my stress level relative to my work level? And for me, uh, I, I think all three of those answers change like pretty often. I mean, in general, I'm like really lucky that I've like settled into a place for now where yeah my work like pays for my bills as a a composer and a teacher and a performer i work a ton but if i don't feel like working 80 hours this week like i don't really have to it's pretty cool i'm stressed with work a lot but i'm also aware it's because i take on a lot of projects yeah, um, and yeah. I I know that like if I wanted to like a lot of my projects I just say like I'm done with this Get everybody else involved just be like all right see you later I've set up a lifestyle for myself that is um, like hectic and difficult but is stable
0: Do you find that is stunts you in any way or prevents you from being maybe more creative or more free to take on other projects
1: I don't I don't know it's it's hard to say because I've never been in a position where I didn't need a day job. Sure. <laughs> but also like my day job is teaching piano lessons. Um you, you know, so like I'm I'm like very like grateful that I get to like work in music all the time. L- luckily like my schedule's arranged in a way where I can like compose in between lessons. At, at least for me where I am right now, I think having like a day job or like a non-creative job kind of makes the time that I have available to be creative like much more um, Mm. potent because I know like yeah yeah, I don't have like literally all day tomorrow I only have four hours tomorrow so I better make it worth it
0: well that's what I wonder if there was no time constraint if you were uh, a billionaire and you could just sit around and compose all day would you would you actually compose
1: I I mean I think I would Um, yeah the I mean most of my (laughs) most of my life like I've just been like Making stuff, so
0: making stuff, yeah,
1: um, and I mean, really, until a couple years ago, it was never like financially viable, so yeah i i I assume that I would keep doing it, but I think as uh, composers or as musicians or artists, we tend to look at like people, um uh, like Philip Glass comes to mind, like somebody who like, could you ever be bigger than Philip Glass, like at this point, like yeah. like, what can't that dude? Do like he has all the free time in the world to just like compose and like do his thing. But when you really think about it, it's like, oh, actually, like he must have like so much crap to deal with.
0: Well, I was gonna say to be to continue being Philip Glass, yeah, yeah, what are all the press events, the things, the other things he needs to do in his life? Yeah, he probably has to appear on podcasts and all these other things, yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. And like, I mean, like, how many lectures or whatever can he give of like the same string quartet? before he's like I just want to go like write something or he's like don't want to do this anymore (laughs) you know
0: How do you feel about this whole debate of talent versus hard work? And this this goes into Creative cogitation two point one, where it talks about: Do you believe in talent or do you believe in hard work?
1: I think that's a good question because there's definitely like a myth in classical music of you know like oh that that guy was just like so talented or yeah. you know like you think about like somebody like like Mozart who had a huge just like like natural talent. For doing like, sure. whatever, but for like producing like that much work uh, by 35 or whatever, yeah, is a ton yeah. of hard work. And also to to do as much as he did, he wasn't just coasting on talent. You know, when you're 17, you're like, oh yeah, you know, um John Smith is so yeah. good at the at the trumpet, he's gonna be huge, and I'm so jealous. Um, and it's like, no, like that kid was talented because we lived in Derry, New Hampshire, and uh you know, then he went to the real world and like didn't put the work in. Um, Mm. So I I, I definitely, I I believe in both. I'm really lucky that I think like a lot of music came like really naturally to me. But like, I also like put the hours in like constantly. And I think like all my peer group does too. Like everybody's just like working their asses off all the time.
0: And is that the unhealthy part of it? this myth that somebody just does something in one take. They had perfect pitch when they were born and they were amazing. I mean, even the Mozart example, I mean, his father was sort of parading him around yeah. as a as a very young child when normally he'd be out like playing in the woods or something like that. Yeah. He was performing and practicing and, you know, and he was this kind of show pony for, for lack of a better reason. So he was putting in those like 10,000 hours. He was putting all that time in and he was also being marketed. If you think about it, he had a marketing team. from when He was very young who was marketing that he's such a genius and he's such a talent.
1: You know, also I always need to remember that like for anybody who's like famous or has been like really successful, there's always this kind of like perfect storm of events. I totally believe in hard work, but I also totally believe in like, yeah, that guy was in the right place at the right time. Like you think about something like like minor threat, great band. Ian MacKay, like every band he has been in is like they produce the perfect records. I can't get enough of his music. But I also recognize if he had started Fugazi uh, before having done anything else, nobody would have cared.
0: And also the DC scene, the, the punk scene, if that wasn't as supportive, even if they had done it in Baltimore, you know what I yeah. mean, or or they had been in a different city would, would it, people have responded to that? They were in Athens, you know, Athens, Georgia yeah. versus would they, would people have been like, ah, oh, this is a little too loud. We're we're more interested in like REM. So right,
1: <laughs> somebody like that would have like made it happen no matter what. Basically every band that was, that put out a record in like 1984 in Washington, DC has a legacy. Uh, And some of them kind of suck, but like, you know, (laughs) that's the scene they were in. So that's, I think that's part of like being an artist is sometimes people just fall into like the right scene at the right time. And
0: that's, that's not to uh,
1: diminish anybody's like talent or hard work, but that's part of the equation.
0: Well, Greg, uh, thanks so much for taking some time to share your music with us and your, your thought process. I think it's actually really inspiring how, how hard you, you work and how dedicated you are to sort of storytelling. I think that in itself is sort of a lost art. So if people wanted to find out more about what you do and more about your music, where would they go to find out more information?
1: Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this has been really, really great to chat with you. Um, my website is uh, gregnahabedian.net. Um, you can check out uh, my new opera company is called Strangetrace at strangetrace.org. Um, I also run a small record label um, called Dollhouse Lightning. And um, I'm also one of the founders of the Boston New Music Calendar, um, which lists and promotes new music events in the Boston area.
0: Thank you to Greg Nahabedian for sharing their time, music, and experience. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen to other episodes in the podcast, and as always, like comment, and subscribe on your preferred podcasting app. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and this has been The Process.